Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. I want to make you aware that right after the service, as we open up the Word to 1 Corinthians 5, kind of a tough topic, tough text, right after the service we're going to have a Q&A uh, featuring all the pastors that are here. Um, right afterwards, you can text in your questions all during the service if you want. The number's on this next slide here, and the number will be coming up later at the end of the service as well. So if you have questions, stick around afterwards. There won't be childcare during this time, so if you have kids and you want to stay, go grab your kids real quick, bring them in here. We're going to enjoy all the noise together, um, and it won't be real, real long, so you won't have to keep them too, too long from lunch if we get out of this text in enough time to, to make that a possibility for you guys. But if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be going through this whole chapter this morning. And as we turn there, let's, let's pray for the Lord's blessing on, the, on His Word as we open it up. God, sanctify us by the truth. Your Word is truth. Amen. Every bride knows that it matters how you look on your wedding day. I don't have to tell the women in the room this. You do this naturally. There have been years of preparation that have probably gone in to this bride's or any bride's decision on what they're wearing, how they're doing their hair and everything on their wedding day. So we're talking like years of thoughts and dreams and hopes. We're talking stacks of magazines that they will look through. We're talking books that they will read, blogs that they will look up, shows that they will see on TV that, that go into the planning. And that's just the beginning because when the wedding day rolls around, you could have a seven o'clock wedding and somehow at five in the morning, the bride is up and ready to, to get ready to prepare herself for this day. And, and part of that is, is like, wow, that's a lot of preparation for one time. But it's, it's a beautiful picture, right? The bride wants to pre be presented as without any blemish, without any spot, this pure and spotless bride coming before her groom. It's a, it's a beautiful picture, but we know that, that there are several things that go into that, right? So the, the guys, they'll show up like an hour before, put their clothes on, maybe brush their hair, we're good to go. Girls, they'll be there for like seven, eight hour a day of work, hard work you got to put in before you're ready for that time to go in. And so if there's any imperfections, if there's anything wrong with the hair, or if there's something needs to be done with the makeup, they will take out anything that they need to make sure that all the blemishes are, are gone. Every little spot and stain is, is taken care of so that they can walk down as a pure and spotless bride. Well, the Bible speaks to us of, of another wedding that this similar, these weddings uh, actually enact in a way. It talks about a, a bride, and the bride in the scripture is, is the church of Jesus Christ. And this church as well will be presented to the groom, Jesus Christ himself, one day. And this will be a great wedding celebration. And as a bride is to present herself pure and spotless, without blemish, so the church of Jesus Christ is to be presented to, his, to her groom without spot or without blemish, completely pure. And the Bible gives us instructions for how to get there, for how to be a pure church, for how to make sure that we're taking care of these imperfections and these problems until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, we won't get all the way there. We're going to require Christ to completely make us new people and take out our sinful nature for that to happen. But there are some instructions for how to get ready for that time. So in 1 Corinthians 5, we see some of those instructions for how to get this bride ready for the groom on that day. And so what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is he's calling the church to take action to remove a person. 
And the reason he calls them to take action, to remove someone from their congregation, to remove someone from their community, is in order to save that person, but also to purify the church. And so we're going to see this kind of dual purpose for what's going on and what Paul is calling them to. And so let's look at the situation given in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul begins to address this situation starting in verse 1. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, this situation is already really bad. Just one verse in, we see this is a bad situation. And it's worse knowing that Paul says, even the pagans don't accept these kind of things. Even the pagans know that this is wrong. Even the pagans know that this is off. These are pagan people that don't care about God, that don't care about his glory, don't care about his honor, that don't care about upholding his name. They don't care about God at all. And so we know that their morals are a little bit different. But even then, they, they see what is happening within the Corinthian church as, as being off. He says, for man has his father's wife. And so what's going on here is that a man is, is having some sort of ongoing affair. And it's, it's likely his stepmother. We don't know that for sure, but we think that it's probably his stepmother. And, they say, and it says that they don't, they don't even care about this. That the pagans care about this. The pagans know this is unacceptable. They don't even care about the one true God. And yet this is accepted among your community. This is a universal, moral a thing that is rejected. If a man has his father's wife, it's, it's universally rejected. Universally known, even by pagans that don't care about God, that this is not the way it should be. And yet the attitude of the Corinthian church doesn't reflect that kind of idea. But instead, if you look in verse 2, and you are arrogant. So not only is this happening within their congregation with a member there is having this ongoing affair, but it says you are arrogant about these things. And so the problem that Paul is going to primarily address in this passage is not the man and the stepmother. It's not the man and his sin. The problem that Paul is primarily addressing and the people that Paul is primarily addressing is the church and what their response is to be to this. And it says if right now, they're arrogant. Now maybe these Corinthians thought that, that we're spiritual people and so what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter because we're, we're spirit as well and so the body doesn't matter and we, we're, we're holy in spirit. Maybe that's what they thought or, or maybe they thought, you know, we're free in Christ and so we can exercise our freedom however we kind of choose. And so they choose, maybe he chooses to exercise his freedom in this way and the congregation's like, wow, you, look at you exercising your freedom. Good job for you. You're, you're free in Christ. Or maybe they thought that they were being really, really loving, really, really gracious and really, really accepting. And so like, yeah, bring them all in. You know, we're, we're a church for, for all people. Whatever the case is, their reaction, according to Paul, is completely mistaken. There is a complete lack of concern over this blatant, public, and gross sin. Arrogance should not be the church's attitude toward this man, and arrogance should not be the church's attitude toward sin. But rather, he says, and continuing on to verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? Ought you not rather mourn? They're acting like it's no big deal. And Paul says, you need to be mourning over these things. The church, as he told them earlier in 1 Corinthians, this is God's temple. This is the place where God's spirit dwells. And so in your community, in your gatherings, you need to reflect that kind of identity. You need to reflect that reality. I'm reminded of Isaiah when he comes before the throne of God. He, he sees this vision. He sees God on his throne high and lifted up. And what do we see from Isaiah when he responds to what's happening? He responds to the holiness and the greatness of God. What does Isaiah do? 
He's not arrogant. That's the furthest thing from Isaiah's mind is arrogance. He says, woe is me. He says, I am completely undone. I'm destroyed because why? I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so Isaiah is taking not only responsibility for his own gross sin that makes him at a place where he could be destroyed before a holy God, but also his people as well. That's the attitude we ought to have about sin. That's the attitude we ought to have sin in our own life and the attitude we ought to have sin in our people's lives. But there's this complete lack of concern over sin. And this isn't just a problem for the Corinthians. This is a problem for every single church and every single individual. Regardless of what the problem is, there is this really easy thing that starts to seep into our lives where we start to think that sin is not as bad as it really is. We start to show this lack of concern. And what we're really showing lack of concern for is not just our sin, but lack of concern for God and his glory and his holiness. And so the, the, the reality is, is that if we're serious about God and his greatness and his holiness, then we must be and will be serious about our sin. The reality is, is there's not enough mourning in churches. There's not enough mourning in individuals' lives. There's not enough mourning in my life. How do we know if we're being arrogant like these Corinthians, what do we do when we sin? How do we know we're being arrogant like these Corinthians? Well, the answer is, what do you do when you sin? What do you do with that sin? Do we ignore it? Maybe cover it up some way? Pretend it's a little bit better than what it seems? Act like it's no big deal? Or do we mourn because we've offended a holy God? No, we need to understand the nature of our sin. That our sin is not primarily against other people. That our sin, as it is defined, is primarily against God. And God isn't just like us. He is completely holy and cannot handle sin. That would, if anyone would look at him face to face in their sin, they would die because he is that holy and we are that sinful. And so we don't understand the nature of our sin, that it's that bad and that it's worse than we think. Our sin is greater than we think. One sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of eternal punishment forevermore. We don't understand the nature of our sin, so we are arrogant. And we don't understand the nature of our God, that He is great beyond compare, holy beyond compare, pure as pure, and cannot tolerate sin. See, if we truly see our sin for what it is, and if we truly see our God for who He is, then our attitude would be much different. It surely wouldn't be arrogance. Be much more reflective of what Isaiah says when he says, I'm undone, woe is me. So for our church, we're sinful individuals. We're among sinful individuals. If you didn't know that, like, welcome to sojourn. You're a sinner. You're among sinners. And so we're not keeping sin out of the church. But we ought to switch our attitude about it within the church. And we need to think through, what is our attitude? What's our attitude individually, but what's our attitude as a church toward this? Because what many churches will do is they have even pride, in a sense, in being really accepting. And what they'll do is they'll slap a label on it and say, we're just a really gracious church, that so we're accepting of people of all walks of life. And I hope that that's, that's really true, that we want to be gracious and accepting of people from all walks of life. But we don't want to have an arrogant attitude towards sin. We don't want to just unwillingly come in, let anybody come in and say, we're just unwilling to admonish sin when we see sin. You see, sojourn is a safe place for sinners. I'm a sinner, you're amongst sinners, welcome if you're a sinner. This is a safe place for sinners. But it should not be and will not be, if we can have something to do about it, be a safe place for our sin. 
What we're doing is we're trying, through the word of God, calling people out of sin and say, walk according to what you've been called to. Walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And so what we want to do is lovingly admonish, exhort, encourage, and even uh, uh, confront people in their sin because we know that that ultimately is the loving thing to do. And so how serious are we about sin? The answer to that question is going to tell us a lot about how serious we are about God. About what we really think about God. Because when we think about God and we think about how serious God is about sin, see, God is so serious about sin that he had to do something about it. He could not not do anything. Three negatives. He had to do something. And so what did God do to deal with this monstrosity that is our sin? The only thing that could be done was that God could take it upon himself. And so God cares about sin so much that he would send his son. He would send Jesus, who is God in flesh. God cared so much about sin that Jesus would would take on the punishment that sin deserved. That's how much God cares about sin. Our care about sin ought to reflect who God is and the nature of our sin. And so there should not be arrogance in response to our sin. There should be more, more mourning. And so we have this man who's among them who has this ongoing affair with his father's wife and they're arrogant about these things. And so what, what do we do now? What, what is Paul calling them to do? What's to be done about the situation? What's the truly loving action? Paul calls them to action. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says, Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Now remember that the problem isn't just this man. The problem is the church. He's calling the church to take action. Remove this man from among you. And he continues, verse 3, For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And if I'm present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And so Paul, he's, he's very decisive here. He's pronouncing judgment already. He's, he's, I'm not present with you, but I'm pronouncing judgment because I've seen this situation. He's hearing the report of this situation. He's saying, this cannot continue. And so he's pronouncing judgment on them. He's saying, it's as if I'm there with you and I've reached a decision and the decision is this man must be removed. So if you continue in verse 4, it says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We recall the church is the bride of Christ, his body, his temple, the place where God's spirit dwells. And so the church operates under and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a unique presence from Christ that's, that's with his church. Unique presence when they gather together. There's a unique authority here. He tells Peter that the, that the church hold, has the keys to the kingdom. So there's some unique nature within the church. Unique authority. Unique power. And he says, when you gather together, this authority and this power is, is present with you. But when you gather, because churches do gather, you cannot gather, you cannot have a church with people you don't gather with. And so if you're never there, if you're doing it online, that's not a church. You gather together, that's what churches do. When this church gathers, they're to remove this man. So within that, just don't have time for all this stuff, but there's some implied membership there. There's some implied knowledge of who's in, who's out, who's part of this thing, who's not part of this thing. But God's intention is for every believer to be under the, the care, protection, and and. Uh, growth and shepherding of a local church. 
And so what he says is when you assemble, you're to act with the authority and the power of Jesus and you are to remove this man from you. So Paul is calling on the whole church. He's calling on them to act. He's calling for community action. And this is what's really addressed. Not the man, once again. The community, you guys take action here. This is your deal. You need to, to deal with this. And so Paul, he tells him to remove this man. In verse 5, he, continues, he says again, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And one uh, theologian said that while Christ reigns within the church, so Satan reigns outside of the church, and so what is being called for is for this man to be put outside the reign of Christ. To put out where Satan reigns. He's calling them to turn this man back over to Satan and his sphere, which is the world. Now, he does reign the world under the, the reign of Christ, right? But he does have some authority within the world. And so he's saying, remove this man from the care, protection, the shepherding, and oversight of the church. Put him back out into Satan's domain. And as one author says, his profession of faith no longer appears credible because his life decisions have the appearance of someone on the path to damnation. And so removing this man, as Paul tells them to do, as one pastor puts it, serves as a declaration that God and his people have turned the wayward person over to the desires and devices of their sinful flesh, the world and Satan. He's saying, turn this man over to the things that he really desires anyway. Because he is lacking in repentance. This man, by living this way, by making these decisions that he's made, he's showing his true self. And what he's showing in this moment is that he not, not that he loves Christ and is following Christ, but that he loves the world and he's following the world. He's willing to do whatever his heart desires. And his heart desires his father's wife, then he goes after that. And they're saying, turn this man over. Let him follow those desires, but let him do it knowing that he has to do that outside the love and care and protection of the local body. His desire for sin is greater than his desire to live for Christ. And that's all of our sin. And, and Paul says, and you're arrogant about these things. No, remove this man. You see, sin is always, always at odds with Jesus and his purposes. Sin is always at odds with Jesus and his purposes. And so this man is at odds with Jesus Christ and his purposes within the church and their purpose within the world. And they say, you need to remove this. Because it will be at odds with all that you're trying to accomplish and do. But Paul, he doesn't do this removal himself. He doesn't say he's gone. He calls for the church to own this, to take responsibility here, to remove this man from among them. You see, true churches where Jesus Christ is Lord, where all the, all the people are trying to be faithful to Jesus, where they're rightly proclaiming his word, that's a true church, they must be ready to take action against sin because we don't want to be arrogant towards sin. We want to take it as seriously as we take our God. And so the church needs to be ready to take action because the nature of our sin is far worse than we think and the greatness of our God is far greater than we think and so we need to be ready to take action. Indeed, Jesus told us some steps to take this action in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he doesn't listen to you, in other words, if he doesn't repent and turn from his way, take one or two other people along. And if he doesn't listen to that, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen even to the church, then let him be to you a tax collector and a Gentile. In other words, remove him. 
See, the final step is taken here in 1 Corinthians 5. We see being worked out. This is serving to this man as a declaration that we can no longer affirm your profession of faith, that we can now just say that you are just like a tax collector and a Gentile, one who does not care about God at all, who is oriented totally toward himself and toward the world, and so he must be removed. So many of you are probably thinking right now, but isn't the church supposed to be a place of love? And isn't the church supposed to be accepting of wicked people? And isn't the church supposed to be this gracious place, and yet we hear all these ungracious things? Why, why do we even need to do this? Why would you need to re- be removing someone? That seems very harsh considering the situation. Indeed, probably many of you have individual circumstances that you're bringing up in your mind that might even be outside of this. And you think, why? why? Why do this? Well, Paul gives us reasons and concludes in verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I like what the NIV says. I have it up there for you. It renders it well. It says, for the destruction of the flesh. You see, people of the flesh are oriented toward the world, away from God. People of the Spirit, as Paul says many times, if you're either of the Spirit or if you're of the flesh, if you're of the flesh, you're of the world. You're, you're oriented toward yourself. You're oriented toward away from God. And if you're oriented toward the Spirit, if you're of the Spirit, then you're going toward God. He wants the destruction of this sinful flesh. He wants them to be handed over to the destruction, the destruction of his way of life away from God. That's what he's calling for. And so the aim is, is this man's salvation. The goal in the end is this man's salvation. The, o- the only goal that Paul is saying for this man is redemption in his life. Destroy the sinful nature that works against God that he might be saved. That's his purpose. That this man might be saved. Paul desires salvation. Paul desires redemption. But he knows that this only happens through this man waking up to the sin that he's living in and turning away from that to a living God. This only happens through repentance. And so why remove this man? In order that he might be saved for redemption, for repentance, for restoration. This is truly the loving thing to do. See, God wants his love reflected in the church, but it's not the kind of love that we normally think of. It just says, whatever will go is fine with us. That's not the kind of love that God has toward us, and it's not the kind of love that the church is supposed to show to its people or to the world. And C.S. Lewis says that if God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. So when we fall in love with a woman, do we cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul? Do we not rather then first begin to care? Of course you're going to care, right? This is this idea. You're going to care about how this person is. You're going to care about their health. You're going to care about how they look. He goes on to say, in awful and surprising ways, we are objects of his love. You have asked for a loving God and you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, but the consuming fire himself. See, God's love isn't what we normally think of it. God's love isn't just this gushy, worldly type of love that we normally speak of love. It's not just mere kindness. It goes much deeper than that. And because God loves us, he is this consuming fire. He cannot tolerate sin among us. And this is the same way we have to reflect this with one another. 
We're we're worshiping and serving under the name of this consuming fire God. And we can't just say, well, whatever happens will happen. We're just going to let it all go because we're gracious and loving here. No, that's not real love. That's not the love of God. And we're not reflecting it if we say those kinds of things. The loving thing is to say, we'll remove somebody if necessary for the destruction of their flesh so that maybe God would redeem them, so that maybe he would save them. You see, that's the, 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 every case of church discipline. Salvation is the goal. Restoration is the goal. Redemption is the goal. This is what we're looking for. And so when we remove someone, what we are declaring is that we can no longer as a body, we can no longer as a church affirm your profession of faith because of the way you're living. We can't validate that anymore. And so what we're not going to do is to continue to act like everything's fine when we think you're on a path to damnation. That's unloving. The loving thing to do is say, we cannot affirm this anymore. We want to affirm it. We need you to repent. This is what God calls us to. To not remove someone would be a way of affirming, in a sense, someone's profession of faith. And it's an extremely unloving thing to do that, that displays this lack of care for sin, lack of care for Jesus, and lack of care for repentance. And so we remove with the hope that they're going to come back. We remove them, as Christ said, so that maybe... Maybe they'd be waking up to the reality of their sin and repent and run to God. The goal is to love an individual enough to remove them in order that we might gain them back. It's redemption, repentance, restoration. And the means God has given us to do this is church discipline, is removal. Taking this man and sending him over, casting him out to Satan. This is the loving discipline that should take place in a faithful church. Jesus commands it. And we're well aware that you guys have surely seen this done wrongly. That you probably have some negative experience with this in the past. But the truth is, is there are places in the world where I can't drink water. That if I drink the water, I will get sick. So what do I say and conclude? Well, I'm done with water. I can't drink it anymore. Because some places it'll make me sick. Some places it'll, it'll be messed up. So I just, I'm done. I'm not drinking any more water. No, we can't do that. We can't just get rid of a teaching that's true and biblical just because it's been skewed and messed up. We can't just stop drinking water just because in some places it could be bad for us. We have to have water. We have to be faithful. We have to trust and obey Christ. And even when it seems like it's completely out of touch with the culture, we trust in Christ. He's the rock on which we stand. And so, even if it's been skewed in your past, even if it's been done wrongly, this is a, a teaching from the scripture, and so we can't just say, well, just forget about that. Disobedience isn't an option for a disciple. We trust and obey, and so in order for us to be faithful, we have to trust and obey Jesus, our Lord and head, and we obey him. But I want us to notice that it's not just the individual's salvation that the, is the purpose of this removal. There's much more. If you look in verse 6 and 7, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And see, another reason that's so clearly given here for the removal of this person isn't just for this individual himself. In fact, most of the time, Paul is spending on the church and their action and their reason for this removal. And the reason here that it's given is so clear, it's for the purity of the church. So it's not just for the salvation of this man. It's also for the purity of the ongoing and living church of Jesus Christ. Remove him. Paul never addresses this man. He addresses the church because purity within that church matters. And so he's saying, remove this person so that you guys may be pure. Because he says, verse 6, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. 
Now, leaven was made by, by kind of keeping back a, a piece of the previous week's dough and then adding some juices to it to kind of help the fermentation process go. And so what can happen is, is that this little ball that's added some juice, it can get, get moldy and grow bad. It could be a problem. And so one piece of leaven, if you keep it, it could be passed on for weeks and weeks and weeks. One piece can work through the, the whole entire dough, and it will keep processing this over and over and over again. And so the only way to change this is to completely get rid of that whole batch. You can't just pull the, pull the part of it out and throw that away. No, like you have to get rid of this whole batch, and you have to start with a completely new batch. You have to start afresh. And Paul says, you need to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump in verse 7. See, this man's behavior and his attitude and his influence, they're dangerous to the church. We don't want to underestimate sin. We do this all the time in our own lives. We don't want to do it within the church. Like, sin is worse in us than we think, and it's worse than everybody else than we think. We shouldn't be surprised at the, the greatness of our sin and the greatness of other sin, but we don't want to underestimate it. It can work through the whole lump. Paul is telling us that he knows, he's seen this. It can work through the whole entire lump. And so for purity's sake, if there's one corrupt member, that's sufficient to corrupt the entire church. And so he says, remove that. For purity's sake, that person who is corrupt must go because it can work through the whole thing. But he says something interesting in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. And then he tells them who they are. But you really... You really are what? Unleavened. Cleanse out the old leaven because we don't want it to work through the whole lump. But you, you as the church, you really are unleavened. So here's another Paul thing that happens all the time. The indicative is driving the imperative. The indicative, you are unleavened, is driving this command before them. You are cleanse out the old. And so he's saying, this is just a paraphrase of what he's saying. Be what you are. Live in light of your identity. You are unleavened. You are pure. You are holy. You are the church of Jesus Christ. Don't let these things happen among you because this is who you are in Christ. This is who you are as a church. So don't let these things happen. Live out your identity as a church. So he's calling them based on their identity to live a certain way. See, if you're a Christian, you ought to let your identity fuel and form your behavior. If you're a Christian, you're called a child of God. And what do children do? Child is an identity, and their behavior reflects their identity. It ought to match their identity. So children love, they obey, they trust, they depend on and follow their parents. And if we're really Christians, our identity is being a child of God. And so our behavior is going to reflect that identity in our lives. Our behavior is going to reveal it. And so if someone's behavior reveals something different, then we need to question their real identity. Are you really in Christ or are you not in Christ? Do you really trust God or do you not? And so what we do as a church is we take action to maintain purity that one piece of leaven might not work through the whole lump. Why do we do this? Because we are unleavened. And if a little leaven gets in, it's going to work through the whole thing. Now this doesn't mean that we expect from everybody sinless perfection. That's not what he's talking about here. And it doesn't mean we go on these crazy witch hunts to find someone that's corrupt because they're going to get all us messed up too. We're constantly saying sin is not safe here. Walk away from sin all the time. So we're not on a witch hunt. We're, we want to get rid of it all the time because we are Christ. We are his. We are his by identity. And so we behave a certain way. See, Christians' lives are lives that should not be characterized by sin. Christians' lives are lives that should be characterized instead by faith and repentance. Amen. 
by continue seeing our sin and continuing to walk away from it in faith in Christ over and over and over again. And we really never get off the cycle till the day Christ comes. See, Paul, he gives another characterization of the church if you keep reading in, chapter, in verse 7. You really are leaven. And then he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We should be known for our celebration. We should be known for our joy and thanksgiving because Christ, our Passover lamb, the one that took our sin, the one who atoned for our sins, the one whose blood was shed that we might be passed over from death, He has really been sacrificed. He really is ours. We can really trust in him and be passed over. And so we should have this ongoing celebration. How do we do this? By holy living. He's saying this is a practical outworking. By holy living. Not with the old leaven. Not with that stuff. Not malice and evil. But with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's a a holy living aspect to this. Not with the old leaven. We're we're eliminating the old way of life. We're continually trying to get it out of there, the old man. And we're celebrating with this unleavened bread, with purity within our church, purity within us. We're we're trying to walk in that way, walk in purity. And so Paul gives them reasons for removal. Yeah, maintain purity within the church. It matters. It can work through the whole church. And so we have to stop this. We have to take sin seriously. But he doesn't stop there. He finishes out the chapter making this ongoing application. If you look in verse 9, he refers to an earlier letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world, the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul is clearly not calling for separation. Say, have nothing to do with those wicked sinners. But here's what he is calling them to. Verse 11 But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now Paul, once again, he's not ringing the alarm and saying, "Uh uh-oh, I saw a Corinthian with with a wicked sinner. I saw him in the bar drinking with people, so we we, got to get rid of him. That's, That's not what he's calling him to. He says, I'm not saying you need to disassociate with the world. Jesus was with some of the worst and most reviled people in all of society. Because he said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. The sick are the ones that need a doctor. And so he goes to those places. He goes to, to these people. But he says, I am ringing the alarm for something. And it's for the continued association with someone who calls himself a brother. With someone who is claiming the name of Christ. If they're saying, I'm a Christ follower, and they're living in a certain way, if they're living in a sexually immoral way, don't associate with them. Don't act like everything's okay. Don't even eat with such a person. Because to do so, even to eat, even here in our culture and society, would to give the appearance of approval, give the appearance of affirmation in their faith. And he says, don't even do that, because sin, that disrupts fellowship. In fact, where, where there's unrepentant sin, there is no fellowship. It cannot happen that way. So don't even eat with such a person. It cuts off fellowship if they're unrepentant from their sin. And he concludes, verse 12 and 13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom we are to judge. The implied answer is yes. God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. And Paul ends with a a quote to kind of wrap up his command to them as a body. And as a church, they're to make judgments. These judgments hold weight. They have authority. 
They're gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have these keys of the kingdom, as it were. The church is responsible to purge the evil person from among them. So Paul isn't writing that just the Corinthians will do this in this instance. No, he, he quotes an Old Testament verse. He's saying this, this, this wasn't an Israel thing where they were this theocracy that wasn't to uh, uh, allow sin in their midst. And this just isn't just a Corinth thing where you're to remove this evil person from among you and the New Testament church can figure it out whatever their cultural values are of the time. No, this is a timeless truth. Purge the evil from among you. You cannot tolerate it. You see, Christ loves his church. From heaven he came and sought her, lived for her, died for her. And now the church and all of its activities and its members are tied to his name. And that's where it gets really important. You're not just representing yourself. You're representing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an amazing reality that the church gets to represent Christ in the world, gets to be salt and light to people that don't have it, to get to, be, to people who are in the darkness, and we get to represent Jesus' name. We get to carry forward his mission, that he would call us unworthy, unworthy sinners to such a thing is a tremendous privilege. But this is what he calls us to. We exist not for our own name, but for the fame of Jesus Christ and to carry out his mission in the world. And what he does is he calls his church to uphold his great name. How does he do it? By taking action when there's someone who's living amongst us, whose behavior does not reflect the name of Christ, whose life is showing that his, his profession of faith doesn't seem to be valid. Christ, for the sake of his church, calls the church to take action. And so, if we want to faithfully represent Jesus here at Sojourn, if we want to be obedient, if we want to represent his name well, we have to purge the evil person from among us for the purpose of their redemption, for the purpose of our purity, but for the glory of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are such hard truths. But we know that you're good. And so even when we see texts in the scripture that seem unpalatable to us, may we just take them and swallow them and trust and obey that you are good, that your processes are right. And may you help us to have the courage to stand and be faithful, standing on you and your word and saying, we know this is true. It's here for our good, our instruction, our correction. All things are working together for our good, even the things that seem hard. So God, may we trust you and move forward in a way that would be faithful and honoring to your name. Because God, that's why we're gathered. God, that's also why we exist. And so, would you help us to exist and be sent and be on mission for the fame of your name. And all that that includes, including removing someone from among us. God, we know the pain and the depth of hurt that all that takes. Many of us have been there. And God, we just pray for your redemptive process to work itself out. Because at the end of the day, we do not trust ourselves to save a single soul. We put that where it belongs in your hands. And we cry out to your name that you would redeem. And you said, this is how you do it sometimes. And so God, help us to carry this out for the sake of your name, for the good of individuals, but for your glory, for the purity of this church. In his name we pray. Amen.